title of the message is Abraham's Faith and Ours. If you guys remember in Romans 4, Paul is doing a case study on Abraham, this ancient father of the faith for the Jewish people. And he's trying to draw that into his explanation, his demonstration, his proofs of justification by faith, by God's grace alone. And if you guys remember our shorthand for justification, justification is just as if I'd never sinned or and or just as if I'd always obeyed. Yeah, these are our little shorthand uh, memory blocks for justification. Justification is that act of God by which through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us, when we believe this in any moment in our lives, that we come to Christ for the first time, God declares us righteous in his sight. He declares us through the blood of Christ covering all of our sins, destroying the record of our sins which stands before him. He wrecks it, tears it up, burns it, throws it away forever. And he, because of that, declares us blameless, righteous in his sight. Justification is just as if I'd never sinned. Justification is just as if I'd always obeyed. And it's the same thing when we say we're justified. It's the same thing as saying that God declares us righteous. Okay, I know I'm going over this a lot, but Paul goes over it a lot. And it's okay to go over it a lot because it is foundational. Whatever you who might know about architecture, engineering, know about what it means to build a foundation. The foundation is, in some senses, it's everything, right? If you build a great foundation, then a lot can happen afterwards that can be weaker or better, stronger or lesser, and it's going to be okay because the foundation is strong. If you have a really poor foundation, then whatever you build on that, it's, it's going to be really messed up by that poor foundation, right? So this is really foundational for Paul. It's why he's spending so much time, really Five chapters, are the first five chapters of Romans are all about justification by faith alone. And then the rest of it is touched by it and affected by it. So now he's double downing on this guy, Abraham, <clears throat> to show us what does it look like to be justified by God, declared righteous by God. This thing that we have to have as the foundation for everything else that God's going to build in our lives. And now today, we're going to do a deeper dive into Abraham's life as we've been looking at him for a couple of weeks now. And I, I want to highlight three things as Paul uses Abraham as an example of faith and justification by faith for us. It's really, Abraham's going to be an example of what does it mean to really believe God? And, and of course, when Abraham believes God, he's justified by faith. But we can learn a lot about what faith is supposed to look like for us by looking at this life of Abraham believing God. And I want to keep coming back to looking at the broader picture of faith. I want to keep coming to believing God specifically for justification. We don't want to let that get too far out of our, of our line of sight. That Abraham is believing God. Paul's explaining that. But the belief in God is to a specific end, being justified by God. Okay, I'm going to highlight three things in Abraham's faith journey that teaches us what true faith is and teaches us how the Lord works in us. So I'm going to try to do three things. And if, and if two hours from now, I'm in thing two, we'll wait for thing three. I promise. <laughs> but if I'm, okay. So the first point is this. True faith is an honest faith. This is what Abraham tells us. True faith is an honest faith. It is not a pretend faith. Look at verse 19 with me. In, in, in fact, I'm going to read the whole block. And then I'm going to jump in because we need a little bit of context here, Okay. 
As it is written, starting in verse 17, we'll go back a little bit. There we go. As it is written, I have made you, speaking of Abraham, this is a promise given to Abraham, a father of many nations. In the presence of him, God, whom he, Abraham, believed, that is God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that do not exist. Speaking of Abraham, Paul says, in hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he, Abraham, contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited, to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and was raised because of our justification. This big passage is full of background and things that happened to Abraham and it's going weaving in and out. And as we wrap up summer, I know that people have been here and have not been here. Like it's, it's every week, it's, it's kind of a, a crapshoot of, of, in terms of who's here and who's not. So if you've been here, then you're tracking. If, you, if you've missed messages of the last month, then it's going to be a little bit more challenging for you. But, but try to follow along. I'll try to do some background rooting to get you in these tangential questions and old background context questions that Paul's dealing with here, okay? So my first point is this. True faith is an honest faith, not a pretend faith. True faith is an honest faith, not a pretend faith. Verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Verse 19, look at that. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated. What did he contemplate? That he was 100 years old. His body was good as dead. And that Sarah, who was younger than him by about 10 years, had a womb that had never produced a child. Yet with respect to the promise of God, that God would bring a child through Sarah, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. But he contemplated, he contemplated the reality of his situation, that his own body was as good as dead. Abraham did not pretend that the world was not as it was. He did not deny he and Sarah's circumstances. He, he looked at what was around him. He saw it, he took it in. It was, from an earthly point of view, discouraging. His eyes were open to his circumstances, but Abraham's heart was open to God. Yes, he looked at life as it was. He and Sarah were too old for childbearing. Even for those years when the Bible records people living longer than we do today in the genealogies of Genesis, there's a really strange thing going on where people live, starting with Adam, a thousand years, and they live centuries. And then after the flood, whatever changed in the world, either by God's will or God working through nature or both, people's life expectancies began to drastically become reduced. You can see that in Genesis 8, 9, and 10. By the time Abraham and Sarah were around, people were living over a century, well over a century. But they weren't having children necessarily as long as they did. 
So Abraham and Sarah were past the point of childbearing already. And they had never been able to have a child in their whole marriage. Abraham knew all this. It says he contemplated this. He admitted this. He looked at his life as it was. But he included God in looking at his life as it was. In other words, when Abraham looked at life, God needed to be accounted for. In any question of what could be possible, in every, any question of what could happen or come to pass in his life, God, because God was real, also needed to be accounted for. And in Abraham's case, God had given him a clear and explicit verbal promise to miraculously intervene and create a baby in a 90-year-old woman who was his wife. So Abraham, again, he faced life as it was. He was old. Sarah was barren. But life as it was included God being real and giving his word to Abraham to bring a miracle child into existence. This may seem irrational that a 100-year-old woman, or probably if we want to, if we want to, uh, make a parallel to our day and age in terms of what was going on in Genesis, it would probably be more like maybe a 60-year-old woman would bring a child. It might seem irrational, but it is only irrational on one condition. Why is it irrational for a 60-year-old woman to bring a child when God comes and says a child will be brought? It's irrational if God is not real, if that promise is not real. If God is real and he gives you such an explicit promise, then it is not irrational to believe that promise. It is rational. This is a really, really, um, I think a really, really important lesson for us that what God calls rational is, is, is so often what we, is not what we call rational. What God calls reasonable is so often not what we call reasonable. One of us is wrong, in other words, most of the time. When you read the Gospels and Jesus walks around in the Gospels and deals with people, you will see again and again how disappointed and sometimes astonished he is at the unbelief of the people around him. He goes around everywhere, in other words, acting as if it's only rational that people should really believe him and his father and their ability to do anything. It, it, and this doesn't mean, by the way, that, that, that we should go around expecting God to do everything that we want him to do. There's a difference between believing that God can do everything and demanding or commanding him to do anything. But Jesus' point is, as he walks around the earth, hey, I'm here. I'm God in the flesh. What are you worried about? What do you think you can't do if I tell you you can do it? If I call you to do it, what do you think you can't do? Why would you think you can't do it? It's me. I made you. I made everything. What do you mean? You're, so, you know, just, just, this is how Jesus' attitude is throughout the entire gospel narratives. He's sleeping in a boat in the storm. There's a big storm. It's crazy. He's on purpose asleep in the boat. As a storm that's so bad, his apostles or his disciples think that they're going to capsize and they're afraid of dying. Like it was a really bad storm. Jesus is sound asleep in the boat. And they wake him up. They interrupt his nap. They're terrified. And he gets up from his nap and he rebukes the storm 
and he has an agenda. He, things to do after I wake up from my nap, after my bowels, he rebukes the storm. The next thing he does, he rebukes his disciples. <laughs> he says, what are you doing? Why are you freaking out? It's me. It's me, I'm here. And they, then they're just like doubly terrified. What is going on? Remember Peter. Peter's seeing Jesus walk across the water, right on the water. Pit, pat, pit, pat, pit, pit, pat. His feet are walking on the ocean. Peter's like, oh boy, this <laughs> looks like amazing. I want to do that. Somehow he's filled with faith that if Jesus says, come and do it, this is, this is beautiful. If Jesus, if you command it, right? He's not demanding, but he's saying, if you tell me to do this, I can do it. And Jesus says, let's go, Peter. Get out of the boat. Peter starts walking on the water. It's amazing. Then Peter looks at the waves and goes under. He's drowning. Jesus grabs him, pulls him up. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, attaboy, Peter. That was awesome. That was 30 seconds. Next week, let's try to do 35. No, he doesn't. He says, Peter, why did you doubt? You were doing great. You should have kept doing great. In other words, Jesus' normal expectation is that when he commands something, when he promises something, we should expect it. We should believe it. We should count on it. From beginning to end, God expects us to take his promises as trustworthy. It's his normal attitude for what should normally be. And that's very different than how we respond to God so often, isn't it? I mean, I'm talking about just his normal promises in the Bible. Like, hey, I'm going to provide for you. Keep seeking me. Don't worry. Abraham believed God. When God told him, I'm going to create a baby in your womb, your, your wife's womb, she's 90, he said, okay, I believe it. I believe it. Now, it's not quite that simple. We'll see in a second. But yeah, he got there. He believed it. He looked at God's word given to him and he said, you're trustworthy. And you know what? If we step back and we think for a man like Abraham, it actually might have been even less challenging for us in some ways, I suppose, because we're of the, irration, we're of the rational enlightened age. The rational enlightened age whose scientific authorities say that the world created itself. Whose scientific authorities tell us that nothing came from nothing. Everything came from nothing, right? That's what Stephen Hawking believes. That everything that was created came from nothing. That the world invented itself and created itself. As someone famously said, I, I, have, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, to believe that. But Abraham looked at the world and he saw cause and effect operating in all things. Abraham saw the sun come up. He saw it shine on the sea. He saw the water turn into clouds, cause and effect, cause and effect. Then he saw the clouds bring their rain onto the land, a land that had been sown with seeds, cause and effect, cause and effect, and out come the plants and the food, cause and effect. Everywhere he looked, he saw the law of cause and effect, that nothing comes from nothing. And so when he heard the voice of God tell him, I am God and I will cause Sarah to bring you a son, he was able to get there. He was able to say to himself, this is, this is not irrational. There is a God. Everything could not come from nothing. It's a lie that I won't believe. The creation needs a creator. And so he believed that if God was great enough to invent mothers and fathers and babies, then God could interrupt 
the normal processes of mothers and fathers and babies and bring a baby any way he wanted. This is rational. This is sane. To look at the world and say, this is a miracle. Life is a miracle. Me existing, me having consciousness, this floor below our feet, it's a miracle. Creation is a miracle. Therefore, God must be. Paul says that in hope against hope, Abraham believed. This is a beautiful phrase. In hope against hope, Abraham believed. I believe as best I understand it, this this phrase means that Abraham, knowing how a person without God would look at the world, would look at Sarah's womb and his age, knowing how hopeless things looked from a God-less, I don't mean evil, but just from a take God out of the equation point of view. No, Abraham, he stood against that perspective and he looked at reality with God in it, with his promises governing reality. And he said, God can do this. He got there. It wasn't quite like this, but he gets there. God can do this. God can do this. He's the God of the impossible because he's God. He's God. He created all of this out of nothing. He commanded and it came to be. He spoke and the world stood firm. As David says in the Psalms. So when he tells me that my 90-year-old wife is going to have a child, he can do this. So now what is Paul asking for us to do with that old story of Abraham? He's asking us to relate that to our justification. To relate that to the impossible idea that God would take people who are selfish, who don't love him as they should and don't love one another as they should and would say, you are now righteous in my sight. You are now blameless because of my son's blood. He is asking you to consider that yes, life is real. It's not fake. Your sins and his righteousness are in real and serious conflict. But then to see Jesus Christ crucified for all of your sins, all of them, and to see your justification in Christ as your governing reality of what really is true because God is real. Around 500 years ago, a theologian said it this way. All things, I have this quote, Ed, if you want to go one slide forward. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. In other words, he's connecting that to Abraham, right? Everything, Sarah's womb, his old age, they were in opposition to the promises of God. So he says, all things around us are in opposition to the promise of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality. In other words, surrounded with people dying and corruption. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sin. He testifies that he is propitious. That means he favors us. He he loves us. He's kind over us. He has a loving, favoring heart towards us. But outward judgments threaten his wrath. In other words, we're thinking of all these things that God might do to us or that the world might bring upon us. 
What then is to be done? We must, with closed eyes, pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. I would qualify this quote by protesting that this text is telling us that Abraham did not close his eyes. He simply opened them wide enough to include God. He didn't close his eyes to life and how rough it was. He just kept opening them and opening them and opening them. Like uh, Puss in Boots, when he's trying to hypnotize people, his eyes just get really, really big, right? God's not asking you to pretend that life is not perfect when it's broken. He does not ask you to act as if you are in heaven when you are oppressed by trials and sin and spiritual darkness. He does not ask you to act as if you are strong enough to handle whatever life throws at your way when cancer and marriage troubles and job loss can absolutely crush your heart. But he asks you to keep opening your eyes wider and wider and wider so that God comes into view. So that you see his son and you hear, your ears are open wide enough to hear the voice of his son in the midst of all that's telling you in this world you will have trouble. And to hear his son keep going, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Or to hear his promise, outwardly you are wasting away. It is happening. (laughs) From the age of 30 years onward, you are slowly dying. Every person. And those of us who are well past 30 know that more truly. Outwardly, you are wasting away, but inwardly, I am renewing you day by day. And most of all, according to this text, all those good promises that come from God are to be anchored in the first great promise Paul is telling us. The promise that purchases every other promise that Jesus Christ has made you acceptable to God, that he has justified you in God's presence so that you are now qualified by Jesus Christ to receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace ad infinitum through eternity. This is what God is asking you to believe despite what you can see with your eyes, that his body and his blood have granted you a status of righteous and therefore all of God's promises are guaranteed to you in Jesus This is what Paul means. He's not just throwing out sweet hallmark phrases when he says in 1 Corinthians 19, let's move one slide forward. When he says, keep going, keep going. There you go. Thank you, Ed. For the son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him, it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. What does he mean in verse 20? Look at that verse. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. That sounds really beautiful. It sounds like something you would get in a Hallmark card. It sounds like something you could have over the fireplace of your house, but not have any idea what it means because it's crazy amazing what he's saying there. He's saying that Christ's blood has purchased for you every good thing there is in the universe forever. If you will turn to Jesus as your savior and ask him to be your savior and change your heart to be 
your Lord. This is what Paul is saying. Jesus buys everything for you through his blood. Number two, true faith is not perfect faith, but growing faith. This is a shorter point, as is the third. Look at verse 20. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but you strong in faith. True faith is not a perfect faith, but a growing faith. If you go from Romans 4 and these, these words about Abraham, and then you go back into Genesis and look at Abraham's life, you're not going to see a perfect faith. You will see a man with real faith struggling at times to walk accordingly. When God first brings the promise to Abraham that Sarah's going to have a baby, he says, he laughs. He says, how can this be? And he's not just laughing joyfully like, woohoo, that's amazing. <laughs> Mario, I sound like Mario. That sounded like Mario, didn't it? He's not just laughing at that. He is, he's laughing. And the next thing he says is, can we do this another way? Like, how about? There's somebody else who could have babies. <laughs> There's another way to make this happen, God. So he's not laughing because of joy. He's laughing because there's no way. Sarah laughs at the promise. God says, Go, that's a beautiful little interplay. <laughs> The Lord visits them. Three people come to Abraham and she, the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh? Sarah says, I didn't laugh. And the Lord just gently says, no, but you did laugh. That's the end of the little conversation. I, I noticed you deep in your heart, just not, not really taking me seriously. No, no, I did, I did. No, no, you, 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 you didn't take me seriously. See, God really wants to be taken seriously. It hurt, I, I don't know if I could go this far, but I think it probably grieved his spirit when Sarah dismissed his promise. After God calls Abraham into a relationship with him, and Abraham has been walking with God some time, there are two times we see in the Bible that twice in great fear of being murdered, by powerful kings, that instead of going to the Lord with his fears, he, he actually lies. Some pretty significant lies that put Sarah in some very hard situations. And God has to intervene to save them. In all these things, we see that like us, Abraham was imperfect. He was imperfect in character. He was imperfect in his belief, but it was real belief. We, we see him wrestling, though, with God. He, he never lets belief win the day. He, he brings his junk to God. He brings his struggle. He brings his protest to God. He says, God, how? Why? What about this? Do you know what's going on, among other things, in the heart of somebody who really brings, brings their complaint to God, who really brings their hurt and their struggle to God, like goes to him with it. Do you know what's going on in that heart? Faith. Some faith. Why would they ever go to God with their struggle and their concern and their fear and their brokenness? And their, Why would they go to God if there wasn't faith? Right? So that's a lesson for us that we're to bring our junk to God. We're not to harden our hearts 
close the door from him, stop the conversation. We're to wrestle. And through that wrestling, God grows our faith. If we keep on seeking, keep on knocking, keep on asking in his word, go to those who love him and know us well and keep struggling with them, seek answers, seek help. I know some people who run into big doubts and they push through and they grow big faith. Over a long time, they grow big faith, like an oak tree. When you looked at it 20 years earlier, you would have thought it was a weed blowing in the wind. And you look at them 20 years later and you're like, there are some oak trees in the garden of your heart. I also know people who have had big questions about God. And for one reason or another, they're done with God. They're done with him. It's no more. 20 years later or, or less, marriages are over. Affairs have taken place. Families have been very, very hurt. But the bigger issue is the loss of the relationship with God or the question of how real was that relationship to begin with is probably a smarter way to consider it. But Abraham brought his complaint to God. He brought his struggles to God. He fought with God about his complaints. And that's a healthy thing for us to do. He didn't start day one. You know, there's this famous story in the Bible that some of you guys might be familiar with there where uh, towards the back end of Abraham's life, God actually, after he brings this promised miracle child to him, when the boy grows up somewhat, God actually calls Abraham to do what? To give the child as a burnt sacrifice to God. Spoiler alert, God doesn't let him do this. It's shocking to us. But God says to Abraham, offer up your son Isaac that I've given to you as a burnt offering. We can, we can look at that story and just be like, oh my gosh. And we'll talk about it in a second. But I think what's really important to keep in mind when we look at a story like that is that happened much later in Abraham's life than we might realize. See, God started with a promise. He didn't start on day one with offer up Isaac. He started with a promise of grace. And, and he started with justifying Abraham through faith in these promises, full stop, in these beautiful promises that he gave Abraham. And then he patiently walked Abraham through a relationship in which his faith, while yes, there from the start, was challenged and had to grow over time. And it was many years later that God called Abraham in a place of maturity and readiness to offer Isaac and then said, no, 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 no. I see that you do fear me. Your faith, your trust in me is real. Tim Keller says, the life of faith is not the perfect life. It is the life which clings on to what God has said he will do and which sees struggles, joys, and failures as a means of increasing our attachment to the God who makes and keeps his promises. Wouldn't that be great? If that was our attitude, like God, when you bring struggles and failures through my life, I will just see them as means of increasing my attachment to you. Gosh, with that kind of attitude, you could count it all joy. 
Well, that's exactly what God calls us to do. And that's why James tells us to count it all joy. And isn't that easier, much easier for me to preach than for me to, to do? But, but that's why we need to stay close to his word. That's why we need to stay close to prayer. That's why we need to look out for each other and support each other. Because it is a battle to keep believing. But let's keep going. Like Abraham, you and I have may, maybe had our initial moment of believing God when we were little. We got baptized when we were little. Of being justified by believing what Jesus has done for us. But it is more than a moment of faith that we're called to. It is a life of faith. And it's as we walk with God, honestly, bringing our struggles, our questions, our challenges, our failures to him, sometimes very desperately, that God, like he did with Abraham, will meet us and affirm his commitment to us again and again in his word. Last point, true faith is a God-glorifying faith, not a self-glorifying faith. Let's go forward, Ed. True faith is a God-glorifying faith, not a self-glorifying faith. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. When we consider Abraham's faith, it's important again and again and again not to put the primary emphasis on Abraham. I mean, it's tempting because he's amazing as we read about him. And he is really amazing. Like he did some bad stuff, but he did some incredible stuff. But we have to struggle to not put the primary emphasis on Abraham as if he's the great one who deserves the glory. That's missing the whole point of what Paul is trying to get us to in this passage. The issue of Abraham's faith in Romans 4 is not about Abraham's faith, really. It's about whose faith, who, the, one who's, <laughs> the one in whom his faith is in. Abraham's faith was in a specific person who gave him specific promises. And it is this person in his promises that deserves the spotlight, or as Paul says here, the glory the attention, the credit, the excitement, the hope. I just alluded to that pivotal moment in Abraham's life when decades after God first called him and justified him, he tests Abraham's faith by asking him to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering. And we look at that moment. If you're like me, you look at that moment and you think about how great Abraham's dedication must, to God must be. I mean, I think about Michelle and Jesse and Luke and Maddie and Isaac and Emma and these babies. And you're just like, what are you talking about? How could he, you know, 12-year-old little daughter and offer her up. And yes, God is, by the way, God's not going to ever do that because he commands us in his word that has come later. He has is, he is forbidden that kind of thing. But this is before he made that clear in revelation of himself. Anyway, you look at that moment and you think how great Abraham's devotion to God must have been. Even though we know what God won't ask us to offer up a child in sacrifice, we might wonder, would I be strong enough as Abe was, to give up what is most precious to me to God. And we think to ourselves, Abraham was incredible. And when we do that, we glorify him. But Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 tells us that it was not Abraham's glory, but God's glory 
that made that happen. In other words, it wasn't, it wasn't Abraham's greatness that was paramount in, in the chemistry of Abraham being able to do that. Because listen, listen, and I never saw this, for, it took me really decades before I realized this as a believer. God had promised Abraham descendants, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, nations, through whom? Through who? You can say it louder, you who know it. Who did Abraham get promised descendants through? Isaac. Isaac. Abraham was promised. Isaac would be the child of promise, that his progeny would come through this boy. And it was as a boy when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac. God had brought him, just as he'd said, through a miracle. And now that he was a boy, God was saying, give him back. He was still a boy. He had no children. And here's what Hebrews 11 tells us. Listen to this. When Abraham heard that call of God, he did not think to himself, oh, crud. Everything was going to be so great and now it's ruined. But I've got to be dedicated to God. Oh, what will happen to me? Oh, I have to be strong. I have to be strong. After all this graciousness and kindness, now I have to give Isaac back, but I have to be a moral, holy man and be strong. No, Hebrews 11 says, Abraham reasoned that the same God who had brought Isaac miraculously could also bring him back if he died. It literally tells us that in that moment of offering Isaac up, Abraham, quote, reasoned that God could raise the dead. Now, I'm not saying it was easy or it wasn't emotional. I'm sure it was horrible in his heart. But here's how he got through it. He said, God promised me this boy. And he didn't just promise me this boy. He promised children through this boy and more children and a great nation through this boy. And he did a miracle to bring this boy. So if I give him this boy, he's going to give him back because we're not done with this boy yet. In other words, Abraham did not offer Isaac because he was so morally incredible that he was willing to give everything to God. Abraham offered up Isaac because God has shown his faithfulness already in bringing Isaac by his miraculous power and had promised that Isaac would have children. And so Abraham expected God to keep his promises. If Isaac lost his life that day, God would raise Isaac. So this story that we can make all about Abraham is really about a God walking with a guy and that God keeping his promises with that guy over and over again to the point where that guy just believes God is going to do what he promises and banks his life on it. And that's how God gets glory. When we trust him to do what he says, when we act as if he's real and trustworthy. See, when we really believe God's promises and we fight against the escapes, whatever they might be, whether it's being just anxious without going to God over and over and over again or escaping into anger 
instead of going to God with our anger, which we all struggle with. But when, when instead of those things, we, we say, no, 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 no. I'm not going to go into this escape route. I'm going to him for help because I'm struggling. In those little simple moments, you know what is going on is angels are around. Devils are around. The universe is watching you. And they're saying, oh, goodness. They're giving God glory. They're acknowledging that God is real. They're living as if God is the one to be dependent on. They're acting as if they're not weak, but God is strong. They're taking him seriously again. In your weakness, when you run to God with your struggle, you're praising God more than you know. And when you believe in the midst of your failures as a person and your sins as a fallen being, that Jesus is still your righteousness in heaven, when it feels more tempting to just wallow in condemnation and wallow in guilt and wallow in hopelessness because of what you've done again, or how you've yelled again, When you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I thank you that you forgive me. And I thank you that Jesus is still my righteousness. Do you know what you're doing? You're giving glory to God. The universe, angels and devils and the cosmos is around you looking in ways we can't see. They're saying, oh, glory to God. Glory to God. Against hope. In hope, they're believing that Christ is their righteousness. And that gives them glory. And that's where Paul ends here. He says, now, verse 23, go forward, Ed, please. There you go. Now it was not for his sake only that it was written that it was credited to him as righteousness, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited righteousness, to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and was raised because of our justification. You don't have, at least as far as I know, God's voice coming into your world and saying, I'll do this miracle. <laughs> I'll bring a baby when you're 90. I, I, don't, I don't know that any of us are going to hear that promise. Or Isaac, I will turn you into many kings. I, I don't know that Isaac Marshall is going to hear God tell him that he will become many nations full of kings. I don't know. But you know what? It, do, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> because we have a much, much better promise that God has proclaimed to all of us that Jesus Christ was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and was raised because of our justification. That is the promise that every little and big promise in the Bible is pointing to. This is the great promise giving to the human race. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. This is the promise that God isn't whispering to Abraham in the dark in a desert, but has been trying to proclaim from the rooftops for 2,000 years to our ears and to the ears of those around us. 
And God says, glorify me by believing in this promise for yourself and proclaim this promise to those who need me. This is the ultimate promise that gives God glory and doesn't give us glory. In believing this promise, we're not pointing to our moral fortitude or our good works or our inherent goodness. We're pointing to God and his mercy. We're pointing to the one by whom we're credited with a righteousness we did not earn and could not earn, a righteousness outside of us, but given to us by faith forever and held in the sight of God. In this way, God is glorified through Jesus, our Savior, and we get to receive the rest and the joy and the peace of being saved. If there's anyone in this room who, who has been hearing about this promise of God and doesn't know if it's their promise, I would love to talk with you. If you're struggling with doubt to believe this promise for yourself, I'd love to talk with you. I understand that. But to all of us who have the measure of faith, even a mustard seed, let's keep clinging to this promise that we're righteous in Christ. Let's keep going to him through this promise for more and more grace that we need to walk accordingly, to walk by faith in him, to grow by faith in him. There's a lot of growing to do, but as I said before, this is about foundations and making sure our foundations are good so that all the good growth can stay.